This is Jody Avergan of 538, and I'm the host of our newest 538 podcast, What's the Point? And here to help introduce this show is our editor-in-chief, Nate Silver. Nate, thanks for letting me do this. Hey, dude. Thank you. This is a quote-unquote episode zero, which is this thing that you have to do when you submit your show to iTunes. You put in a sort of placeholder episode. So you're saying this is a total waste of our time. Well, zero is a number, too. Zero is the most interesting number, Nate. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I figured, though, while while you're here and while we're here in your podcast feed, uh, we might as well have a real conversation and sort of talk about some of the themes that I'm going to explore in this show. Sure. So this podcast, What's the Point?, is basically an interview show uh, with people about how they're using data in interesting ways from all sorts of fields. Uh, we'll talk to people in politics and economics and health, lifestyle. We probably won't do sports since we already have a podcast for that. Um, and some of those people are going to be notable uh, folks in their field, like we have an interview with Neil deGrasse Tyson lined up, New York City's former transportation commissioner, a doctor, a book publisher, but it's also going to be a chance. Celebrities to us. Celebrities right? to us. In we a very small world, these are celebrities. But we are also going to highlight uh, great data journalism from both 538 and other places. With a bias toward 538. A slight bias towards 538. <laughs> but we will be very generous on what's the point as we as we talk about interesting uses of data. And all of that is going to start with the next episode. So one thing I'm curious to get your thoughts on is that I think this is a particularly interesting moment for data. I mean, just this spring and early summer, we had a huge government data breach, a fake data undermining a really well-known study scandal. Uh, The census is under attack in the House of Representatives. There were troubles with polling data in the UK election. So, uh, you know, what do you think? Are are we having a moment of crisis in our relationship (laughs) with data? I I don't think so. I think this stuff is always a little bit complicated, to be honest, right? And I might kind of, I might separate out the security and privacy conversation of that. It's an important part of the conversation. It's a different part of the conversation, though, in the sense that it's not about interpreting data. But I do find it interesting that we're kind of moving toward a case where, you know, Ought one to be more skeptical about um, about scientific studies and academic studies? One reads. By the way, another thing you didn't mention is that you know there is now one paper in the journal Science that says actually this hiatus that was reported in Global Warming. We're not sure if that actually happened or if it's a matter of interpreting the record. Right. right. That's another complicated subject. Um, you know, the polling was poor in the UK, quite poor. It was also not all that good. People might forget. Not all that good in the 2014 U.S. midterms last year, um, you know. So, uh, look, I mean, if you read my book, um, which is called "The Signal and the Noise," and it's yeah. sitting right here on our table, but yeah, know. I think, and you know, I see this when I go out and talk to different people in different sectors, right? It's not just like you know, I felt like a year or two years ago, you know, maybe just in a tiny bit of measure because of Moneyball and 538 and whatnot, there was all this excitement about oh, big data, it's going to kind of right. solve all our problems. And the book says, actually, you know, it's a really good thing to be evidence-driven and empirical, because otherwise you're a total bumbling idiot, right? But the world's a complicated place. Humans are not all that smart. We have all types of biases. Data interpretation is challenging. And we've seen now several kind of real-world cases of that. And that's the, that's the way things are. So it's not a crisis so much as, like, welcome to the real world. 
well, I use that word relationship, and now I'm actually thinking, you know, it is like a really, I mean, we had this sort of like glowy phase with data over the last maybe five or six years, certainly in terms of, 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 of tr- data-driven journalism, but I think just in general, of people thinking of data as sort of the be-all and end-all, and you, you were certainly a big part of that, and now we're sort of having this, oh, this is a real thing, and it's complicated, and it's messy, and I think this show is going to try and explore a lot well, of that. Well, I think, you know, the whole question is like, Look, being more data driven um, is not going to remove all the human biases that we have. Right. Those are really, really deep seated. um, And some of the mistakes people tend to make in interpretations of data um, are the same ones they make in some ways when they're being kind of not being data driven at all. Right. Just going by instinct. For sure. So let's 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 talk about that LaCour story a bit. And for people who don't know the context, basically, this was a really uh, high profile study that showed that when people have formed opinions, they can their minds can be changed by uh, direct contact. And this specific study looked at people who had uh, strong opinions against gay marriage. And it showed that when you have someone talk to them and try and convince them uh, about the merits of gay marriage, that all of a sudden they changed their mind. And we basically learned that it was mostly fabricated. Uh, this this grad student at UCLA, LaCour, still claims that he didn't fully make up all the data, but it really seems The funny thing is he, he sort of did a lot of work. Well, he did a yeah, lot right? of work. I mean, uh, you hear these stories. People talk about him sitting in front of in front of them with like a, with spreadsheets and running through all this data, and 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 being really convincing. And now, in retrospect, we we there's a chance, even though he still denies it, but there's a chance that all of those spreadsheets were just kind of built it's, out of whole cloth. It's interesting that um, the sign that a human intervened and manipulated data is that the data is too clean. A lot right. of the time, right? Where you see this perfect correlation where every person that was canvassed moved by the same amount. It's not like that in the real world. And this other paper on political ideology of news outlets that he apparently also faked. I mean, we right. were looking at that. And, you know, frankly, there were some of the people who reported, but we at 530 have been doing some work on it internally, have been having conversations with people, um, you know. And I felt like the fact that in his paper, all the media outlets lined up perfectly with what you would expect there were no counterintuitive results like, oh, actually, Chris Matthews, you know, by this method comes out as being really conservative. When you work with real data, especially sentiment analysis and that type of stuff, you're going to have all types of results that, that you know, are noisy, that you think are wrong, that you know are wrong, right? Um, but just because the real world's a messy place and methodologies are imperfect, right? And if you adjust a fix from one thing, then you're losing your objectivity and messing up a whole bunch of other things, right? So it's kind of when things are too clean and too pure and there's no randomness and no noise, that's when you should be more suspicious. There's lessons in that noise. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think it's interesting, for example, that with that LaCour paper, it came to a conclusion that um, was kind of politically correct, right? It's a result people liked, like, well, you actually have a gay or lesbian person come and canvas and you're persuaded by that personal appeal right that's a very appealing result to liberals even to conservatives where it's like well it speaks to the decency of people and the value of talking to your neighbors and communities and stuff like that so it's a result that people might not have wanted to question as much these problems that manifest themselves when you have data involved are the same ones that exist in other types of endeavors so the rolling stone uh rape story for example 
which has fallen apart. Well, partly it's because, you know, the story is um, critiquing what you might call like a privileged group, you know, frat boys, University of Virginia, right? Um, they're not the most sympathetic um, defendant, as it were. You know, the story about that may also have been partly exaggerated about wife bonuses. You know, everyone would love to see these uh, these investment bankers or whatever on the Upper East Side be proven to be total assholes, right? Um, but that also means that, you know, there's maybe less scrutiny when when accusations are made against them. And of course, whatever little kernel of truth might be in there, which could very well be the case in all of these stories we've mentioned, uh, gets totally undercut by the fact that, you know, this runaway train of yeah, and that's, bad data. I mean, that's the that's their irony, right? Is, you know, I mean, look, um, if you're working with data well, then you're going to have kind of a lot of little wins, as it were, right? You know, it's entirely plausible. There are other studies on this, by the way, that um, that canvassing helps a little bit and kind of neighbor-to-neighbor persuasion matters for support for gay marriage, especially when people know someone who is gay or lesbian in their communities. There's pretty robust evidence about that. Right, right? Political campaigns are built on that. I mean, yeah. the most powerful thing is still kind of how does someone you trust think about an issue? That's often the biggest motivator towards am I going to vote and how am I going to vote? So, yeah. yeah, this was getting at something that we both wanted to believe or a lot of people wanted to believe and also was sort of true uh but of course there was just this immense fabrication going but on. The, yeah desire to have this amazing astounding finding instead of kind of you know a piecemeal win right and then of course you know the media is just as guilty because who's gonna you know you don't, you're not gonna write about the piecemeal finding you're gonna write about this sort of oh no the, amazing I mean, the, over the top the narrative. media a's and abets a lot of this right you know whether it's kind of properly sensationalistic journalism or just the fact that you want to root for the story you want to tell the more dramatic story you might interpret on the one study that says oh we found out how to cure cancer and not the 30 studies that say no way right and i think your point about the lessons being in the noise and really paying attention to that is a big one, and it takes a long time to learn that lesson. But then again, with someone like LaCour, I mean, what can you do to guard against someone who's just like a pa- – I mean, it's like, Jace, it's like Jason Blair or Stephen Glass, right? Uh, like, if they're just going to lie, there's not much you can do. Yeah, I mean, I'm really torn on the LaCour incident between these two points of view. Maybe they're not mutually exclusive, but I feel like they are, right? One being that, well, you know what? Um, this is about as bad as it gets, but still – it's on a spectrum of things and kind of morally it's still and scientifically it's still a little dirty just to fish around through 10 different models to find one that produces a convenient result. Part of me also says, you know what, this is totally, totally separate, right? So right. you kind of, you know, and like every concept, decade there's going to be some sort of pathological yeah. data liar and you just that just happens. Um, one last thing on the core, which is actually I think there's a silver lining here, which is. The guy got caught. I mean, to me, one of the lessons sure. reading this story was that, wow, someone actually did go back and try and replicate this study. And it was just this nice reminder that this is happening behind the scenes. I mean, you know, you could imagine a scenario in which everyone walks away and says, you know what? This was a really you know, tidy result. This told a great story. It got a lot of attention. Let's move on. And someone, right, sniffed it out and said, no, let me replicate this and did, you know, real, real work right. to try and replicate it. So I think there's a, no, there's replication, a silver I mean, lining. You know, there are different ways of replication, right? You can literally replicate the results of a study or you can just conduct another study in the same vein, right? We believe and we publish a lot of our data and sometimes our code 
at 538. We try to make it very, very clear exactly what we're doing so you can replicate it and reverse engineer it, which is kind of against the way, I guess, some journalistic chops feel. Um, but still, you know, sometimes it's more valuable just to say, you know what, if there are 10 studies of the effect of, of gay, lesbian-identified canvassers going out there and liqueur is the outlier, then, you know, then at some level we don't have to worry about whether it was fabricated or badly designed or just a quirky result that can occur sometimes, right? I mean, you should think about that, but right. but at some sense, if it's against the consensus, then then, you know, it's just more robust. And that's one good thing about science is that it kind of is ideally a, well, it is a consensus process, right? One other you know, thing that, that I'm very interested in is just, you know, bigger and bigger data sets don't always mean better and better data sets. And how do you think about sort of all of the data that is just increasingly coming at you and deciding where where to find the actual I story? mean, we're not that good at small data, <laughs> right? Right. So big data seems like a lot to take on. Um, you know, I mean, I tend to use big data in a more informal sense, which just kind of means analytics, really. But right. if you kind of de- define big data properly and there are debates about what it means but I think kind of um, to me loosely it means I kind of think of it in two ways right number one the data set becomes large enough where actually processing the data is a challenge right it's not something you can do on your laptop and number two it's large enough that you're unlikely to be able to to scrutinize and to vet individual observations right it's so kind of macro the analysis mm-hmm. you're doing you know that's generally not true of of um a data set in um sports or politics are there any fields or uh that you feel like data has nothing to say about this world no i mean look i mean but i believe in kind of the scientific way of looking at <laughs> at the world i suppose um and one of the funny things too is look a lot of times where the data isn't that useful the conventional wisdom folk wisdom is as bad and often worse right so you know i'm someone who i sort of weirdly kind of i don't want everything to be all that predictable i think it's kind of what makes life interesting you know i'm also in a weird position where where i know that at 538 and me in general you get way too much credit for like kind of saying the obvious thing right but if you're like oh the 88 percent favorite's gonna win right (laughs) and you're right 88 percent of the time right you get too much credit for that. And right. likewise, there are some thankless cases like, you know, picking one team um, to win the NSA tournament in a field of, of 64. Which I know is like your least favorite thing in the world. Oh, it's like, the best question is my most favorite. But like kind of, you know, I'm trying to be so careful about saying, you know, right. we don't just have one But you refuse that, to fill out a bracket and you just, I yeah. mean, because that's just oh, I do, not how I do brackets, well, Joe. It's yes, just not for public true. consumption. Not for public consumption. Yeah. But like, you know, so last year um, we had Kentucky with what was it, like a 45% right. chance to win. So that means technically we were right. Because we said 55% chance that Kentucky won't win the tournament, which they didn't. But it also means that, you know. No one so saw it that way. Zero people saw it that way. We, zero people saw they, it. They all said 538 picked Kentucky to win, and they didn't win, so 538 was wrong. Uh, but, you know, my, my acronym is MYODP, make your own damn predictions. You know, and we do it too. Sometimes we'll kind of weigh in. We didn't make a prediction of the Scottish referendum where the polls were pretty far off. Kind of went in the right direction, but were pretty far off. Um, and so we swoop in later on and say, oh, you know, stroking our chin, right? Like, oh, look at how bad these polls were. People should have been more careful, right? You know, to me, you don't really have a lot of credibility saying that unless you kind of were actually willing to add knowledge during 
uh, the event itself. But what about the – let's talk about the UK election. I mean we're, now we're a few weeks away at, with, uh, with that sense of perspective. I mean what lessons are you drawing from that? What would you have done differently? So I didn't design the UK model myself and so I like to think that – I don't know. I like to think that if I had, I would have had wider confidence intervals. And I say that because meaning like a wider margin of error. And the reason I say that is because usually for the 538 models that we have done, they're actually a little bit more conservative than other people's models. Um, and just know, to put that in, in plain language, basically yeah. it was, we don't trust the data coming in enough. So we're going to make our margin for error in our prediction uh, I'm not big sure that it will account for the, the noisiness of the data. I mean, it depends on how in. technically you want to get here, right? You know, so one question is, is there structural uncertainty, right? Meaning not just is there uncertainty in the data, but we're not sure what the right model is, right? You know, and the fact that you had kind of this unprecedented thing with five parties that were pertinent to the election. You know, this is why whenever people talk to me personally, I'm like, I don't know, right? Like my last column in the UK election ended with like a shruggy, right? But, right. you know, we hired some very good academics who are very good at doing what they do. But there is, I think, a story which is more important than than these kind of questions about modeling, which is, you know, how reliable is polling? And I'm actually a little bit of a pessimist about that. Why? Um, because at least in the U.S., telephone polls are only reaching maybe 5 or 10% of the people they try and contact, right? Um and for a long time, the kind of question was, well, um, how can you be having polls that do really well? And the polls did really well in, in for the most part, from, you know, 2004 to 2012. There were a number of pretty strong cycles in a row. People remember the cases like Hillary Clinton in 2008, but the polls did pretty well for the most part in those years. Um, but it was despite the fact that they were only getting <laughs> a smaller and smaller percentage of people on the phone. So were those fluky years or lucky years for people like you? Well, look, it used to be if you looked at our, we always have percentages in every forecast, right? If you, it used to be that if you looked at our forecast, they were underconfident, right? That when we said a candidate was 80% likely to win, um, he or she was actually winning like 90 or 95% of the time. That's still true, I think. I'm just saying like, you know, it certainly makes me happy that we have actually these fairly wide confidence intervals. And believe me, you know, people are paying attention to the conflict between like 538 and Joe Scarborough or whatnot, right? Um, you know, but we also get in arguments with other websites where we say, you know, there's just no way that you can be calling the state with 98% confidence now. But of course, at some point, your confidence interval becomes so big that it's got to be meaningless, right? I mean, what's what, what's the point of well, that's, I mean, jumping this is a, in? This is a gut check you perform, right? Um, do you literally think it's 50-50 if you say we're not sure? Um, you know, if if uh, if Clinton is 10 points ahead of Marco Rubio in a state on the day before the election and, and someone else says, I'm not sure we can trust the polls, I'm saying, so you want to bet 50-50 <laughs> on it? So going back to the notion that polling is getting harder, I, I mean, that just boggles my mind to some extent that we can have this march of time, we're moving forward, technology is getting better, and somehow we're, we know less and less about what Americans well, think? Well, since we, I don't know. I mean, since we're on our podcast here and we have time to speculate, yeah. you know, I would say this notion that polling is getting um, getting worse, it's a good hypothesis. I say it wouldn't have been proven yet, right? If you look at the trajectory of presidential polls, have generally gotten more accurate, right? Um, but you said you were a pessimist. If it were just some random trend, just a bunch of numbers, you'd be like, you know what? 
there have always been a few elections like this. You've had mistakes like this in the UK quite a bit, frankly. Um, the election polls in the US were bad in 2014, but no worse than they've been many, many times in the past. But it's the fact that, you know, it was always kind of astounding that they, the polls were not deteriorating with such low response rates. But, you know, people will eventually figure out Internet polls. The problem with Internet polls is no longer that you can't reach people online, right? I mean, now almost everyone is online to some extent. It's more representative than certainly a landline-based survey. But that how do you poke someone at random on the Internet? But that is to you, that feels like the big problem to solve? You know, we'll probably have some telephone polls for another couple of cycles. But, you know, some type of online poll or something is going to have to evolve and emerge unless i mean you know who knows maybe it'll come full circle where people actually knock on one another's door so does that mean that you know where we are in this particular moment is kind of the worst of of all worlds where we haven't figured out internet polling and telephone polling has deteriorated to a point where we're like going gonna have to go through a couple really tough cycles it's possible i mean look the polls could get lucky and the thing is to remember again on the one hand you want to evaluate how accurate a measure is in an absolute sense. On another hand, comparatively, right, you know, the polls were not great in the 2014 U.S. election. They still called about 90-something percent of elections right. You know, it's a lot better than the pundits might do. Um, but just kind of taking those margins for error seriously, um, recognizing that the margin of error in the poll is an underestimate of how large it is in reality. So when we say at 538 that a candidate, according to our model, has an 80% chance of winning, that 20% is not just us covering our asses, right? It's saying that, look, there have been plenty of precedents in the past where candidates that were ahead by this margin did not win, in fact. On the other hand, we cannot pretend to be totally ignorant and Joe Scarborough about it. I look forward to you mentioning Joe Scarborough many times <laughs> between now and November. Of we'll invite 20- him on. Yeah, we will. In our him. environment. Yeah, let's yeah. have him on. Uh, I want to go to another big theme, which is questions of privacy. And these come up over and over uh, when we have these conversations about data. And, you know, as we collect more and more information, how much of that is kept at the the metadata level and how much of that is connected to real individuals? Is this something that you think about with the kind of data that you're working with, which is mostly aggregated polling data? Or do you think about this privacy downside at all? Um, I mean, the work we tend to do... uh, tends not to have these types of implications. We're not doing dealing with a lot of national security data or highly sensitive data. For example, it's data that people choose to to volunteer. Um, you know, what I do hope is that um, is that illegitimate attempts at data collection that do violate people's privacy don't um, taint the government's ability to create the census, for example, and issues like that. Um, but, you know, it's I don't know. I mean, people sometimes assume that, oh, I'm kind of pro-data collection for anything, but there absolutely are ethical boundaries here. And, and right, well, concerns. I'm curious where you, where you sort of land. I mean, are you on the – are you a Julian Assange, like all data should be free kind of guy or are you a – you know, data should be collected on people and the NSA has a proper role in surveillance? I mean, where, where, do you, where do you stand? I mean, I think a big part of what a lot of data geeks stand for is for – is for open access to, to information. I mean, the worst case is if um, the government knows a lot more about me than I know about it, right? You know, right. Um, then that's not advancing scientific knowledge necessarily at all, but they gives them more power potentially. You know, I also think a little bit about kind of, um, 
you know, relatively more open data platforms. You know, I was kind of a fan. I kind of came of age on 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 the web as a blogger in 2008 or so, and that was a very happy time in the sense that it was a very open kind of sharing kind of time, right? And now you see Apple and Facebook and whatnot trying to capture more content within their proprietary infrastructure. Maybe this is a different issue, but I see it kind of, you know, all related to... <laughs> no, um, for sure. And, and I think uh, the data getting sucked up by the private sector is a really big... Uh, will be a theme for this podcast, a big concern of people around here. It actually is a concern of, of a lot of sports analytics folks yeah. when a lot of this data is being purchased and bought up by the, by the teams who are, for obvious reasons, competitive reasons, you know, keeping it. But that, that's an analog to the Googles and the and the Apples of the world that uh, there it just isn't out there for people to, to get their hands on. You know, one word that you hear over and over when we have these conversations about privacy and, and data is is the word creepy and I you know people talk about it all the time this just seems creepy all the, the what 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 people know about me and you know in many ways creepy is like the most accurate word and we should honor creepy as a powerful emotion but it also feels like this really unuseful word in many ways and I just wonder what you think we can <laughs> do to get to like better language to talk about what it is that uh, explains our relationship with data and privacy and what people know about us. I mean, I get a little creeped out. I don't know if I'm supposed to use the word, right? But you have, you know, Google Now, and it'll say, um, I'll just be sitting at home, and it says, you have to leave now for your dinner reservation. I'm like, well, how do you know where I made a dinner reservation, Google, right? And it's like, oh, they it mined my email and whatnot. But that's a little... But do you think we're just going to inevitably get over that? I think it's dangerous to assume that the current trend will continue on unabated, right? That people will keep saying, oh, more and more sharing and kind of less and less privacy. I'm not sure that'll continue forever. Really? Necessarily. Oh, because I mean, a lot of people think that it's just that it is inevitable that it's we just, already have going to share know, more and more data sets are going to get bigger and bigger data sets are going to leak more and more. And we're just well, you already have, have you know, you have Snapchat, for example, right. which is more private than Facebook and is growing quite quickly, obviously, or yik yak. So I think there could be some type of backlash uh, eventually. I don't know. All right. Well, Nate, uh, Thank you for helping me, you know, break the bottle of champagne over the bow of this uh, new podcast. Absolutely, Jody. The first of uh, thousands of episodes. Thousands and thousands of At episodes. At least 538. Yeah. Uh, no, but this should be really fun, and uh, you're not going to be a stranger on this. We'll, we will certainly have you on from time to time. And listeners, hopefully, if you're still listening, you'll stick around for the next episode, past episode zero. And episode one is with Neil deGrasse Tyson. He will be back in this podcast feed very soon, and uh, that episode will have more music and bells and whistles and, and all that stuff, and it should be a really fun one. So subscribe on iTunes or on Stitcher or on Downcast or whatever you use to get your podcasts uh, lots more information at 538.com slash podcasts and get in touch. I'm always open to new ideas, suggestions for who to talk to, any new areas of data to explore. My email address is on the site. You can tweet me at Jody Avergan, which you probably can't spell. So you can find that at the site, 538.com slash podcasts. I'm very excited for this and for all of you to come along for the ride. So thanks for listening and see you soon. 